Several of you, many of you, are studiously turning to Psalm 19, and now I'm going to throw you off of that by saying midweek I decided to not begin at Psalm 19, and instead to hone in actually on the passage we were in last week. Remember we read that all scripture is inspired by God and we looked at the authority of the Lord, but now we are turning to the sufficiency of scripture, and we are going to remain in 2 Timothy chapter 3, though we'll look at other passages as well. So 2 Timothy chapter 3, our main passage will be verses 10 through 17. Now maybe there are some younger ones here who just don't even know the word sufficient. Not a word that we use every single day. But probably most of us here, no matter how little, know the word enough. And the word sufficient basically means to be enough. And the question regarding the Bible is, what is it enough for? How enough, if I can say it that way, how enough is it? How sufficient is it? And the scripture itself provides for us that answer. That's not something that we have to wonder about. Beginning at verse 10, let's hear the word of the Lord. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped, for every good work. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time together as we consider it. Father in heaven, we open ourselves to the work of your Holy Spirit. We ask that you would please increase our appetites, transform us, Lord. We don't ask merely for the increase of facts and knowledge, however important that is, but that you would increase the very desires that we have in our depths so that we would be inclined through your spirit to go in a new direction. And in this case, to want to seek from you what you have provided in the word and to not desire to find what you've given us there anywhere else, to be satisfied with what you have provided for us. Help us, Lord, in times when we doubt that that is the case and forgive us for that doubt. All of this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In a word, when we say that scripture is sufficient, we believe that it is enough for everything that God intends it to do. Everything God intends it to do, though we might have different ideas about what that is, and they need to be held up to scripture in order to be corrected by that. 
But because we believe that scripture is sufficient, that means that the Holy Spirit is calling you tonight and every day of your life on this earth to find from his word everything that he intended you to receive from it and not to feel a dependence on anything outside to provide what he meant to satisfy in this Bible. We're going to see that is focused particularly upon salvation and upon sanctification. And so this is part of understanding and learning and appreciating the place of the Bible in our lives. It's not a decoration. It's not something to, you know, pay your dues by making sure you've got one on a coffee table and people come over and they see it. It is meant to be used. One of the most disappointing things I think we can find, although this has less meaning now because so many people interact with the word on digital devices, but is to see that somebody has had one Bible for 50 years and it doesn't show a lot of wear. Now that doesn't mean mistreat your Bible, but it does mean make tracks through it. And that's because we believe that we find in it what we need for spiritual life. Now, as we consider this doctrine of sufficiency tonight, we're going to do so under three main divisions that basically will help us explore the extent of sufficiency. How sufficient is it? What did God intend it to be sufficient for? And first, we're going to look at ways that the Bible might be unfairly thought of as insufficient. What are some ways that people sometimes approach the scripture and try to take from it what God was not intending it to give? And then secondly, we're going to look at ways that the Bible is sufficient, that God intended it to satisfy your spiritual needs. And then last of all, I want to share with you some pastoral precautions about the way that we handle the word in light of these things. Now, I want you to imagine for just a moment something that has probably already begun to happen in many of your homes. And maybe you're a child and you look forward to this in your future, getting to make stew, a holiday stew. Imagine you're making this holiday stew, you're just getting ready, and you're manning the pot, and somebody else is going to be your sous chef, they're going to be your assistant, and you ask them to go to the shelf and to bring back the cookbook. And you don't realize that person, maybe they don't have their glasses with them, they have poor eyesight, and they don't bring back a cookbook, what they bring back is a compendium of English poetry. And they, you know, they don't want to reveal their poor eyesight, they're embarrassed. Go with the analogy. It doesn't make a lot of sense. And they pass it over to you, and what they give you is not a recipe. What they give you is Lewis Carroll's poem, Beautiful Soup. And you begin to try to follow the poem. Is it the fault of that book that your stew is bad? No! The poetry book was never intended to satisfy your desire for a tasty recipe. It didn't have that purpose. That was not the goal of that book. Even so, there are times when people come to the Bible and they expect it to do things or give answers in ways that God did not intend, and that's not his fault. It's his book. He shares it with us. It's great for us, but he inspired it with his wisdom, which means we need to respect the boundaries of sufficiency. They are exactly perfect, but they will leave you disappointed if you bring expectations that the Bible never offered. So our first main division, what are some ways that scripture might be unfairly called insufficient? And a first way would be this, that it doesn't claim to contain everything worth knowing. The Bible's not the only source of valuable information. God has placed a whole other book of revelation in the world. What is that? 
the world. And then he has granted that people of all sorts have poured insight and observation in order to produce all kinds of wonderful information for us. And so the Bible doesn't have all the worthwhile things to know that there are in the world. Let me give you examples. Paul, the apostle, says, and so we have it on authority. He says, bodily exercise profits a little. And yet you don't find anywhere in the Bible an actual exercise routine that you are to follow. And so that means you would have to go outside of the Bible and use wisdom and discretion in order to determine how should I exercise. The Bible tells you it's good. It provides a principle. And it even tells you that compared to godliness, it's less of a priority. That doesn't mean be unhealthy. That means be very spiritually healthy. Exercise yourself unto godliness. The Bible provides the principle, but as for the application, there is worthwhile information out in the world. For instance, the Bible does not tell us, you know, maybe you are taking apart an engine. The Bible doesn't tell us whether the bolts in your engine are metric or imperial. And of course it doesn't do that. And yet there are people who sometimes go to the Bible expecting it to spell out all kinds of things that are never intended to be found there. It was not designed either to answer every question we might wish that it would give. And I want to take a moment to address especially the younger people here. Now, I don't say this because older people don't do this as well, but you younger ones are at a stage of life where you cannot yet, and you just have to accept this, you're unable to draw on your own lifelong experience. You, I'm speaking especially those who are under 20, you have less than two decades of experience, and that first decade, you can hardly remember it. That's just the situation that you're in. And it's natural to want, to wish that God would just spell out for you exactly which choices to make, because you're going to come up against some incredibly influential choices in the next few years. So, for instance, you might have the question at some point, for instance, what should be my vocation? What career path should I follow? Or who should I marry? And maybe you're thinking about that, and you almost wish that you could open the Bible here, and you put your finger down, and it says, uh, just looking for a name. All right. Um, Judah. Someone named Judah. And that's who I'm going to marry. But that is not how the Bible works, and we cannot treat it that way. It provides principles. And that means, this is an unlikely scenario, but imagine that you meet two people, and they are basically the same. Maybe they are uh, fraternal twins, but they look the same in every way. They have the same upbringing. They work the same job. They have the same godly character, but one has brown hair and one has blonde hair, and now you're trying to decide which one of these people do, am I interested in. The Bible doesn't spell out everything like that, and there is a place as well for preference when it's subordinated to principle. When it's subordinated to principle. For instance, the Apostle Paul is speaking to his friends, the Corinthians. He writes in his letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, that he urged this other great teacher, Apollos, to go to them. He says, I urged Apollos to go to you, but he will come when it's convenient. Apollos didn't think it was time. And Paul wasn't able to open to a page, not even a book he wrote, and say, you have to go there right now. The Bible does not spell out everything. And so that means what we have to do is study the Bible well to glean the principles in order to make wise application. 
And that's not something you just do with that intellect of yours. Remember the story of Solomon, that he prayed for wisdom and God gave it to him. As we approach the scripture and the sufficiency of scripture, it does not eliminate the need for spirit-blessed wisdom to understand what we read. And so I exhort us, all of us, but especially younger ones, pray to God to give you wisdom. That's a skill, and it's a gift that he can impart. Sometimes we pray for that in a particular instance, but there's also a more broad wisdom that people can have. Make that more desirable to yourself than a high-paying job. The, the reality is typically when people have wisdom, they end up with a decent income. That's usually the case. Wisdom should be more desirable to you than a spouse. Typically when people have wisdom, they end up, if they want a spouse, with a decent spouse. Make wisdom, second to knowing Jesus Christ, one of the absolute top things that you seek as you consider life. Yes, the word provides answers, but they're not as direct as we might want. There are also so many subjects that the Lord has simply deemed not necessary or perhaps not even appropriate for us to know about at this time. How much can we really say with confidence about what day-to-day life is going to look like in the age to come? Even though it occupies so much of our longing and our desire, the scripture doesn't tell us very much about how that's exactly going to look and what role you might play in that. How often do we eat? Is our appetite the same? It just doesn't say, and it's not something then that we have to worry about. If God thought we needed to know it, he would have said it. Likewise, curious questions that we all have at different times about, say, demons or angels. The Bible tells us that there are myriads of myriads of angels, and yet the names of the angels that we know could be counted upon one hand. We aren't to pry into what God has seen fit not to reveal. Rather, God calls you to submit with humility to the limits of revelation concerning those things. Hear what it says in Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of his law. There's so much that's secret, and it belongs to him, but what he has revealed, he's given it to you that you might walk in it, that you might live a life according to his purpose, and to know that's a life pleasing to him. I don't have to go off of that track. And so these are a few of the ways, again, that scripture might be unfairly called insufficient. How then is it sufficient? Let's move to the second main division here and look at the sufficiency of scripture. Our confessions rightly identify two primary ways that scripture may be said to be sufficient, and that is with respect to our salvation, our deliverance from the guilt and condemnation of sin and being brought out of death into life and giving the assurance of everlasting life, and then also our sanctification. Our sanctification is that we, in Jesus Christ, have been set apart unto holiness and good works. And then there is a process throughout this life whereby the Holy Spirit is transforming us from glory to glory. He's renewing us. It doesn't go like this, typically. It goes like that. You know, there's ups and downs. But it's a work of the Holy Spirit in his people to transform them. Why? So that we live more and more a life that pleases God. And this must be said. You can please God. You can Now, I'm not saying that you don't have sin. 
and the sin displeases God. But because of our union with Jesus Christ, who is righteous and who is our Redeemer, our Heavenly Father from eternity purposed to bring about this union in such a way that simultaneously he can look at you and he knows that you sin and he doesn't like your sin, but he loves you and he can work by his spirit in you in a way that genuinely pleases him. He can separate the wheat from the chaff. He knows the part that is of your flesh, but he also knows the part that truly is the first fruits of the age to come. Christians please God. And he delights to see our frail works, just as a parent might involve a child in helping with a painting project. And it's not perfect, but the parent delights to see it and is pleased. And that should give us pleasure to know that, that he is genuinely pleased with this sanctification. Now, when I say that scripture is sufficient for our salvation, that means it reveals everything which must be known in order to be reconciled to God and to have the assurance of everlasting life. Everything that must be known, and that includes things like the nature of God, not exhaustively, but sufficiently. That means it reveals whatever is essential to knowing what he requires of us, and who to look to, and what Jesus has done, and the character of redemption in his life, death, and resurrection. See what it says in 2 Timothy, again, chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. But as for you, Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The scriptures are able to make us wise for salvation. Now, somebody might object, how much of the New Testament was written at the time when Paul is saying this? And does that mean, is there any sense in which the Old Testament was insufficient until the New Testament came? When did the Bible become sufficient? I believe the proper answer is to say that revelation has been sufficient for its time. And in the time when God chose to reveal less in a written form, yet there's one essential gospel in all ages. Even before anything had been written down, what God tells Adam and Eve concerning the coming of a savior, one who would crush the head of the serpent, the devil, there's one gospel being revealed, and the Holy Spirit works in the way that God is expecting. And so at each stage, it's sufficient for what the Lord is expecting, and there's one salvation, it's sufficient throughout all ages. Yet on the other hand, if somebody has the New Testament as well in this time and rejects it, we're warned That person has no part because the same Holy Spirit is at work and bears witness to the word. Now, I put it to you as a question to think about, and I don't know. I think a lot of you do know the Bible very well. Some of you, by reason of age or you're newer in the faith, maybe have never read through the whole Bible. And on the one hand, I don't want to lay a a false burden upon you. On the other hand, I do challenge you, especially as you come to a new year here, and you think the Bible's a big book and it's hard. Cumulatively, I would not want to be shown the number of hours that I have invested in things that are inferior to the Bible, that were not necessary. There is time to know the word more than we do. There is. We can make excuses all day, Just don't. Repent. 
And if you fall again, repent again. There's time to know the word. Now, to the extent that you have read the Bible, I put it to you as a question. Does the Bible say anything about the following things relative to salvation? The necessity of indulgences. And if you don't know what those are, excellent. Prayer to saints. The administration of last rites or extreme unction. These are all things which more than a billion people in this world currently are told regularly they need if, if they are to have assurance of being in right standing with God, assurance of salvation. And we would say the scripture speaks of none of these. There's not a whiff of them. They come out of certain traditions. But traditions which can be excellent can also give birth to horrible things, to lies and deceits and to myths. If God saw that it was necessary for your salvation, he would have revealed it in the word. And even as we see again, 2 Timothy 3, the scriptures are able to make you wise unto salvation. Which means if those things have any value, and I don't believe they do, they certainly aren't necessary. Your salvation does not depend upon them. Well, then what about relative to our sanctification? Maybe they're useful in that way. But here again, the scripture reveals everything that is sufficient for our sanctification. That doesn't mean, and I want to be clear, that doesn't mean there aren't things outside of Scripture that are beneficial to your sanctification. And here I think of, say, certain books in my life that were very helpful in explaining how to apply principles of Scripture. But that book, to the extent it had value, was not inventing anything, right? It's taking and comparing scripture to scripture. It's using wisdom. It's bringing it into our time and place rightly. But the essential things are contained in the word for us such that any ordinary person who uses the ordinary means in faith can expect to find what they need. If you persevere, you'll find it there. And that's why it's so important for us not to just submit to following the opinions of persons out there, but to be the Bereans who read the Bible and know what God requires of us. Again, I'll mention certain practices. Are these ever mentioned in Scripture? Things like self-harm, and we think of you know, the obvious example, if you've been Reformed for any length of time, you've heard about how Martin Luther would flog himself before he came to a sense of the gospel of grace. He thought that somehow the, the, the affliction of the body, making himself feel pain, would help him learn to not love his flesh and to be more spiritual. And that wasn't just a, a, a Luther's kind of odd thing. That was a common practice among many monks and nuns to think that harming themselves physically would produce godliness. You don't find anything in scripture like that at all. The only people you find harming themselves in that sort of sense are the prophets of Baal who cut themselves to try to get the favor of their God. Also other practices like using physical devices for our prayers, like rosary beads, where I'm going to, do you know the purpose of the beads? It's to keep count. Once I've done, I was assigned 50 Hail Marys, which by the way, prayer to saints, there's another problem. Hail Mary, I'm going to do 50 of them, and you move the beads along as you go. I'm not saying that if you, that there's maybe a place, I want to be careful to not mislead you here. Maybe there's a place to use some means to count how often you pray, and I know that some of you love metrics. We have engineers in this church, and we have others who like those things too. 
So you have an app that reminds you five times a day and you, you, know, you get points for how many times you've prayed, maybe. That maybe is helpful, but it's certainly not essential. And we have to beware taking anything that is not revealed in Scripture and feeling dependent upon it. That's my point. If it's necessary to godliness, it has been revealed here. Also, certain practices that are in vogue that are not necessarily in the Roman Catholic uh, camp of professing Christians, but in many other circles now, so-called contemplative prayer, which means anything but actually contemplating. The practice, if you haven't heard of it, it's essentially to try to empty your mind by the repetition of one Bible verse over and over and opening yourself to I'm not sure what. And that when I say that with an air of frustration, I want you to understand this is out there. You will encounter people who look at these things. And my grief here is for the people who are harmed in the process. At best, extra biblical practices are beneficial, but not necessary. At worst, they are harmful. And so we have to have our guard up. What's the best counsel here? Know the word. Those who are in the word regularly rarely fall into these things. It's usually symptomatic of a church that has lost its savor for the scripture. Now, as a third division here, I simply want to give a few precautions about the sufficiency of scripture. This is familiar to perhaps every one of us. I will still underscore it. Always remember and hold before yourself. In fact, hopefully it's just a groove carved in your heart, but every time that you go to sit down before the word, remember that the word is sufficient, but it's instrumental in character. It's something God uses. God is the one who makes it efficient, makes it effective. The Holy Spirit works through and with the word in our hearts, which means it is dangerous to sit down and go through your Bible without a posture in your heart of, I need the Holy Spirit to work and to illumine and to guide me and to soften me so that I don't become hard to what I'm reading. That I don't just check off the list that I read through the Bible. On the one hand, I'd encourage you, if you haven't done it before, try to go through the whole Bible in a year. On the other hand, you can also do something unhealthy for yourself by just, like, I was going to say half listening, but the reality is it's like one-tenth listening, where you're just going about your business because you, you know, it's by the time December comes around, you're, oh, I've got to check it off, and I've still got two-thirds of it to go through. And Humility and reverence for the word is important in a sense that, God, unless you work, it won't have its effect. But if you trust him, he does work. And so we come to the scripture always looking to the Holy Spirit. That applies in salvation. And that means also that our proclamation of the gospel, whether from the pulpit or the way that you're going to evangelize people from the scripture, has to be permeated with prayer. Go ahead, reason from the scripture with people. But in your heart, you're asking God to open them and to bring them to repentance and to the knowledge of the truth. And same for sanctification. And then more broadly, I want to just state that the Spirit makes the word effective through ordinary means. And that's what we've been talking about. The word is sufficient, but it has to be put to use. And that means in the first place, of course, there is the formal office of preaching. And it must be maintained. And there is the danger of a situation where you could have a pastor who talks, but it's less and less from the scripture. 
And the scripture is sufficient, but if it's not brought forth, then we don't receive what God is trying to give to his people. I shouldn't even say trying, because it's actually a judgment in a way. When a people loses an appetite for the word of God, he is just in bringing a judgment where he removes the proclamation of the word. That sounds strange to you. It's exactly from scripture. Amos chapter 8, verse 11, the Lord says, Amos 8, 11, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine upon the land. And I, just at that point, now none of us, I trust, have ever experienced a famine. The closest thing we've ever experienced is missing a meal and having to think, oh, I'm going to have to wait a couple extra hours probably. But a famine still to this day in parts of the world can wipe out hundreds of thousands of people in just months. Dying of hunger, not having what they need. And so to read, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land. And you think, oh, no. But then he says, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and north to east. They shall run to and fro and seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. And the image is that finally when they want to hear, oh no, things are falling apart. What, what does God want from us? Those who knew the word and could explain it and express it to them have been taken away. What will judgment day look like for the United States? I am not a prophet, and I don't know. But in a manner of speaking, Judgment Day will look, or could look, like business as usual. But you go into every church in the land, and you will not hear the scriptures faithfully preached. We must pray for the preservation of pulpits. We must pray for another generation of ministers. We must pray that we desire it. You desire it. And then there is, of course, the issue that I want to make clear. I'm not saying that without ministers, you can't know the word. We are Protestants. We are Reformed. We believe in a word nobody uses, but we still should use occasionally and know. Perspicuity. Scripture is perspicuous. Children, I assign you after the sermon to make your parents learn the word perspicuous. Perspicuous. That is a big word that just means clear. Sufficiently clear, which doesn't mean that all parts of Scripture are alike clear, but it does mean that if you persevere, you'll find what you need. And it's like going through a forest that you're not familiar with, and eventually you come to a cabin that you can rest in and is well-stocked. That doesn't mean the forest has no value. It's just not as easily accessible. It's got resources, but you're going to have to work with them. One of the skills of a good teacher or a good pastor is that they can quickly guide you to the places that you're trying to find in Scripture and bring them together. But still, you need to make the point to explore the woods. You need to get in there, and you need to know where things are that you might profit from it. Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. From the context of the Psalms, it is so abundantly clear. He's not just talking about moral precepts or general equity of the law. Those are involved, but he is talking about the actual inscripturated law. 
knowing the word of God. This should be our delight. Now, as we come to conclude, I, I want to acknowledge we do not all have an equal appetite for the word, an equal delight. The scripture is sufficient, but often we are insufficient to desire it and to seek it. And I'm including myself openly in this. I don't always want to go through as, you know, certain passages of scripture. And I do this partly as my vocation. I love to prepare a meal for others. But then sometimes I just don't have the same desire I did at another time. And I have learned through the example of others that the Lord is absolutely faithful. That if we put ourselves by faith in the way of his promises, he will answer us. And that means if you want to want the word, confess to the Lord that you don't, then put yourself regularly in the Bible and trust him. Sooner or later, he's going to change my desires. And don't stop until he does. Take him up on the promise. It is bread and more valuable than the bread of this earth. Jesus says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from God. Not by just, you know, 25 verses that we memorized back when we were children. Every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. Every word, which means your whole Bible is your best guide on earth, is the source of your nourishment in your life. It will require nothing less than the miracle of God's grace to work in this congregation as a whole and in the Christian community more broadly to rekindle deeper and deeper love for the word. But it's absolutely possible through the Lord's grace. So I'd encourage you, put yourself there to receive it. Finally, one last word here. I want to appeal to you concerning a present danger in society. A present danger that affects society at large, but us as well in different ways. And that has to do with literacy. Literacy simply means the ability to comprehend what we read. Through much of church history, the average person could not read the Bible. And there were reasons for that. It made perfect sense in their time. And the Lord was kind to work in those situations, and yet there was a darkness upon the church that was very much a consequence of how ignorant God's people were of the word. Literacy rates in general during the Middle Ages were much lower than they were, say, in Judea in the second century B.C. We sometimes think that history works like every, and secularism will lie to you and make you think, society is just on this constant progress. That's not true. There are ups and downs in history. Currently, one of the most recent reports, this is from barbarabush.org, but they run a major uh, library catalog and try to understand people's reading levels, reported that approximately half of adults in America cannot comprehend writing above a sixth grade level. And I imagine half of Americans would say, what are you talking about? I can comprehend everything I read. That's because everything is written at a sixth grade level. That's not a joke. That's a frightening place to be in, in a society. Because that suggests that, you know, are all of life's issues at a sixth grade level? Politics, economics, industry, medicine, let alone theology, philosophy? No. Christians have to be at the forefront of knowing 
how to read, because we're a people of the word. I want to appeal to you in whatever ways you have opportunities in your life, in the short term, in the long term. Some of you, God is going to lay a burden on you to do a job few people want, and it's going to be an English teacher at a school that probably doesn't pay you enough. Maybe it's going to be a Christian school. Maybe you're going to go as a missionary into the pit of some public school in an area that hates what you believe. I don't know how God will call you. Others of you will have the opportunity to be on school boards where standards are being lowered or people don't even realize how abysmal they are. We have to make a push, at minimum in our congregation, for a culture that cherishes the word and therefore cherishes language, honors language, and will do the hard work of learning how to be interpreters. I want to encourage you parents especially to read with your children, and I think virtually all of you do. Keep doing it especially read the Bible with them and encourage them to read it aloud to you and ask them if they understand what they're reading and then explain it to them. If we won't give them every advantage, it's hard to fault them when they pick up the Bible at age 20 and say, I can't make sense of anything. But if we give them the tools, perhaps God will pour out grace for that. And then finally for ourselves, of course, we have to do that as well. Let's ask the Lord's blessing even now. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the extraordinary gift of your written word that you have preserved through the centuries, through the blood of innumerable martyrs, that you have caused to bear fruit on every soil that it has come to, that has brought everlasting life to millions and millions, and which continues to be the greatest thing you ever gave this earth, second only to that eternal word, which was incarnate, your son. We ask that you would help us to make the most of it, not to be overburdened with the task, but to trust that you will, in truth, change us to enjoy reading and to study and to meditate upon your word. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.